Chapter 15 of The Wild Northland by William Francis Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15. It is possible that the majority of my readers have never heard of the Peace River. The British Empire is a large one, and Britons can get on very well without knowing much of any river, excepting perhaps the Thames, a knowledge of which, until lately, Londoners easily obtained by the simple process of smelling. Britannia, it is well known, rules the waves, and it would be rather ridiculous to expect rulers to bother themselves much about the things which they rule. Perchance, in a score of years or so, when our lively cousins bring forth their little Alaska boundary question, as they have already brought forth their Oregon, Maine, and San Juan boundary questions, we may pay the emperor of Morocco or some equally enlightened potentate the compliment of asking him to tell us whether the Peace River has always been a portion of the British Empire, or whether we knew the meaning of our own language when we framed the Treaty of 1825. Until then, the Peace River may rest in the limbo of obscurity, and in any case, no matter who should claim it, its very name must indicate that it was never considered worth fighting about. Nevertheless, the Peace River is a large stream of water, and some time or other may be worth fighting for too. Meantime, we will have something to say about it. Like most of the streams which form the headwaters of the great Mackenzie River system, the Peace River has its sources west of the Chippewayan or Rocky Mountains. Its principal branch springs from a wild region called Stikeen, an alpine land almost wholly unknown. There, at a presumed elevation of 6,000 feet above the sea level, amidst a vast variety of mountain peaks, the infant river issues from a lake to begin its long voyage of 2,500 miles to the Arctic Sea. This region is the birthplace of many rivers, the Yukon, the Liard, the Peace River, and countless streams issue from this impenetrable fastness. Situated close to the Pacific shore, at their source these rivers nevertheless seek far distant oceans. A huge barrier rises between them and the nearest coast. The loftiest range of mountains in North America here finds its culminating point, the coast or Cascade Range shoots up its volcanic peaks to nigh 18,000 feet above the neighboring waves. Mounts Cryhon and St. Ilias cast their crimson greeting far over the gloomy sea, and Ilyama and Island Coravin catch up the flames to fling them further to Kamchatka's firebound coast. The Old World and the New clasp hands of fire across the gloomy northern sea, and amidst ice and flame, Asia and America look upon each other. Through 300 miles of mountain, the Peace River takes its course. Countless creeks and rivers seek its waters. 200 miles from its source, it cleaves the main Rocky Mountain chain through a chasm whose straight, steep cliffs frown down on the black water through 6,000 feet of dizzy verge. Then it curves into the old ocean bed, of which we have already spoken, and for 500 miles it flows in a deep, narrow valley from 700 to 800 feet below the level of the surrounding plateau. Then it reaches a lower level. The banks become of moderate elevation, the country is densely wooded, the large river winds in serpentine bends through an alluvial valley. 
the current once so strong becomes sluggish until at last it pours itself through a delta of low-lying drift into the slave river and its long course of eleven hundred miles is ended for nine hundred miles only two interruptions break the even flow of its waters a ridge of limestone underlies the whole bed of the river at a point some two hundred and fifty miles from its mouth causing a fall of eight feet with a short rapid above it the other obstacle is the mountain canyon on the outer and lower range of the rocky mountains where a portage of twelve miles is necessary in its course through the main chain of the rocky mountains no break occurs the current runs silently under the immense precipice as though it fears to awaken even by a ripple the sleeping giant at whose feet it creeps still keeping west we began to ascend the peace river we had struck its banks more than a hundred miles above its delta by making this direct line across lac claire and the intervening ridges peace river does not debouch into lake athabasca but, as we have said, into the Slave River some twenty miles below the lake. At high water, however, it communicates with Athabasca through the canal-like channel of the Catafouche, and when water is low in Peace River, Athabasca repays the gift by sending back through the same channel a portion of her surplus tide. Since leaving Loch Clare, I had endured no little misery, the effects of that long day's travel from the river Athabasca had from the outset been apparent, and each day now further increased them. The muscles of ankles and instep had become painfully inflamed. To raise the snowshoe from the ground was frequently no easy matter, and at last every step was taken in pain. I could not lie upon my sled because the ground was rough and broken, and the sled upset at every hillside into the soft snow. Besides, there was the fact that the hills were short and steep, and dogs could not easily have dragged me to the summit. There was nothing for me but to tramp on in spite of aching ankles. At the camp, I tried my remedies, but all were useless. From painkiller, moose fat, laudanum, and porpoise oil, I concocted a mixture which I feel convinced contains a vast fortune for any enterprising professor in the next century, and which, even in these infant ages of puffing, might still be made to realize some few millions of dollars. But, nevertheless, my poor puffed foot resisted every attempt to reduce it to symmetry, or what was more important, to induce it to resume work. That sixteen-hour day had inflamed its worst passions, and it had struck for an eight-hour movement. One can afford to laugh over it all now, but then it was gloomy work enough. To make one step off the old hidden dog track of the early winter was to sink instantly into the soft snow to the depth of three or four feet, and when we camped at night on the wooded shore, our blankets were laid in a deep furrow between lofty snow walls, which it had taken us a full hour to scoop out. At last, after six days of weary travel through ridge and along river reach, we drew near a house. Where the little stream called the Red River enters from the south the wide channel of the Peace River, there stands a small Hudson's Bay post. Here, on the evening of the 17th of March, we put in for the night. At this solitary post dwelt Monsieur Jean-Baptiste St. Cyr, an old and faithful follower of the Hudson Bay Company. 
when the powerful Northwest Fur Company became merged into the wealthier but less enterprising corporation of the Hudson's Bay, they left behind them in the North a race of faithful servitors, men drawn in early life from the best rural habitants of Lower Canada, men worthy of that old France from which they sprung, a race now almost extinct in the North, as indeed it is almost all the world over. What we call the spirit of the age is against it, faithful service to powers of earth or even to those of heaven not being included in the catalogue of virtues taught in the big school of modern democracy. From one of this old class of French Canadians, Monsieur Jean-Paptiste Saint-Cyr was descended. Weary limbs and aching ankles pleaded for delay at this little post, but advancing spring, and still more the repeated assaults of my servant and his comrades upon my stock of luxuries, urged movement as the only means of saving some little portion of these good things put away for me by my kind host at Chippewayan. It seems positively ridiculous now how one could regard the possession of flour and sugar, of sweet cake and sweet pemmican, as some of the most essential requisites of life. And yet, so it was. With a grocer in the neighboring street and the baker round the corner, we can afford to look on flour and sugar as very commonplace articles indeed. But if any person wishes to arrive at a correct notion of their true value in the philosophy of life, let him eliminate them from his daily bill of fare and restrict himself solely to moose meat, grease, and milkless tea. For a day or two he will get on well enough. Then he will begin to ponder long upon bread, cakes, and other kindred subjects, until, day by day, he learns to long for bread. Then the bath buns of his earlier years will float in enchanting visions before him, and, like Clive at the recollection of that treasure chamber in the Murshidabad palace, he will marvel at the moderation which left untouched a single cake upon that wondrous counter. It is not difficult to understand the feelings which influenced a distant northern missionary when, upon his return to semi-civilization, his friends having prepared a feast to bid him welcome, he asked them to give him bread and nothing else. He had been without it for years, and his mind had learned to hunger for it more than the body. My servitor, not content with living as his master lived, was helping the other rascals to the precious fare. English half-breed, French ditto, and full Christian swampy had apparently formed an offensive and defensive alliance upon the basis of a common rascality. Article I of the treaty, having reference to the furtive partition of my best white sugar, flour, and souchong tea, things which, when they have to be portaged far on men's shoulders in a savage land, are not usually deemed fitted for savage stomachs, too. One night's delay, and again we were on the endless trail, on along the great silent river between the rigid bordering pines amidst the diamond-shaped islands where the snow lay deep and soft in Schnee and Batyr, on out into the long reaches where the wild march winds swept the riverbed and wrapped the isle and shore in clouds of drift. On the evening of the 19th of March, our party drew near a lonely post which, from the color of the waters and the neighboring stream, bears the name of Fort Vermilion. The stormy weather had sunk to calm. The blue sky lay over mingled forest and prairie. Far off to the north and south rose the dark outlines of the reindeer and buffalo mountains, while coming from the sunset 
and vanishing into the east, the great silent river lay prone amidst the wilderness of snow. A gladsome sight was that little fort, with smoke curling from its snow-laden roof, its cattle standing deep in comfortable straw-yard, and its master at the open gateway, waiting to welcome me to his home, pleasant to any traveler in the wilderness, but doubly so to me, whose every step was now taken in the dull toil of unremitting pain. Physicians have turned that fellow-feeling which the hand sometimes evinces for the hand, and the eye for the eye, by the name of sympathy. It is unfortunate that these ebullitions of affection which the dual members of our bodies manifest toward each other should always result in doubling the amount of pain and inconvenience suffered by the remainder of the human frame. For a day or two past, my right foot had shown symptoms of sharing the sorrows of its fellow laborer, and however gratifying this proof of good feeling should have been, it was nevertheless accompanied by such an increase of torture that one could not help wishing for more callous conduct in the presence of mal de raquette. A day's journey north of the Peace River at Fort Vermilion, a long line of hills approaching the altitude of a mountain range stretches from east to west. At the same distance south lies another range of similar elevation. The northern range bears the name of reindeer, the southern one that of the Buffalo Mountains. These names nearly mark the two great divisions of the animal kingdom of northern America. It is singular how closely the habits of those two widely differing animals, the reindeer and the buffalo, approximate to each other. Each have their treeless prairie, but seek the woods in winter. Each have their woodland species, each separate when the time comes to bring forth their young. Each mass together in their annual migrations. Upon both, the wild man preys in unending hostility. When the long days of the Arctic summer begin to shine over the wild region of the barren grounds, the reindeer set forth for the low shores of the northern ocean. In the lonely wilds whose shores look out on the archipelago where once the ships of England's explorers struggled midst flow and pack and hopeless iceberg, the herds spend the fleeting summer season subsisting on the short grass, which, for a few weeks, changes these cold gray shores to softer green. With the approach of autumn, the bands turn south again, and, uniting upon the borders of the barren grounds, spend the winter in the forests which fringe the shores of the Bear, Great Slave, and Athabascan lakes. Thousands are killed by the Indians on this homeward journey. Waylaid in the passes which they usually follow, they fall easy prey to dogrib and yellowknife and Chippeway and hunter. And in years of plenty, the forts of the extreme north count by thousands the fat sides of caribou piled high in their provision stores. But although the hills to the north and south of Vermilion bore the names of reindeer and buffalo, upon neither of these animals did the fort depend for its subsistence. The Peace River is the land of the moose. Here this ungainly and most wary animal has made his home. And winter and summer, hunter and trader along the whole length of 900 miles between the Peace and Athabasca live upon his delicious venison. Two days passed away at Fort Vermilion. Outside, the march wind blew in bitter storm and drift piled high around wall and palisade. 
but within there was rest and quiet and many an anecdote of time long past in the wild northland here at this post of vermilion an old veteran spent the winter of his life and from his memory the scenes of earlier days came forth to interest the chance wanderer whose footsteps had led him to this lonely post few could tell the story of these solitudes better than this veteran pensioner he had come to these wild lands while the century was yet in its teens he had seen tecumseh in his glory and blackhawk marshalless sulk warriors where now the river shores of illinois wave in long lines of yellow corn he had spoken with men who had seen the gallant la perouse in hudson's bay when for the last time in history france flew the fleur-de-lis above the ramparts of an english fort in this northern land the veteran explorers of the great north had been familiar to his early days and he could speak of mackenzie and fraser and thompson harmon and henry as men whom he had looked on in his boyhood for me these glimpses of the bygone time had a strange charm this mighty solitude whose vastness had worn its way into my mind these leagues and leagues of straight tall pines whose gloomy moans seemed to be the voice of three thousand miles of wilderness these rivers so hushed and silent save when the night owl hooted through the twilight all this sense of immensity was so impressed on the imagination by recent travel that it heightened the rough coloring of the tale which linked this shadowy land of the present with a still more shadowy region of the past perhaps at another time when i too shall rest from travel it will be my task to tell the story of these dauntless men but now when many a weary mile lies before me it is time to hold westward still along the great Unchaga. the untiring train was once again put into the moose skin harness and after another night of wild storm and blinding drift and with a crack of whip and call to dog vermilion soon lay in the waste behind me end of chapter fifteen